Why worry alone? The Rocky Mountain Myrick Suicide Risk Management Consultation Program provides free one-on-one consultation for any provider, both community and VA, who serves veterans at risk for suicide. For more information about this program and to check out all our resources, please visit the consult page at www.myrec.va.gov slash bisn19 slash consult. To initiate a consult, please email srmconsult at va.gov. Hashtag never worry alone. Welcome to the next installment of the Rocky Mountain Myrex Short Takes on Suicide Prevention podcast. I'm your host, Adam Hoffberg, and we are honored to be joined today by Dr. Jerry Reed of the Education Development Center. Dr. Reed serves in many senior roles across different areas of the federal government, including the Suicide Prevention Resource Center with SAMHSA, the Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, the Zero Suicide Institute, and the Injury Control Research Center for Suicide Prevention. So, Jerry, we're really excited to have you on the show today, and thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to it. Great. So, as we always do, we'd like to really dive in to know a little bit about you, your journey, your history as a suicide prevention uh, researcher, a leader in the field. So, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'd be happy to, and thanks for asking. started my field, my, my journey professionally back in uh, I guess it was like 1974 when I joined the U.S. Navy, and I spent four years serving the, the country in the U.S. Navy overseas and uh, went into the Navy with the explicit purpose of benefiting from the GI Bill because I really wanted to acquire an education, and without the GI Bill, that wouldn't have been a possibility for me. So I served my country uh, peacefully, thankfully, during peacetime and in um, Europe and came back and pursued my master's degree and my bachelor's degree and ended up with a social work and administration. And the day I graduated from um, my graduate school, uh, moved back to Europe and began working as a social worker for the U.S. Army, this time in Germany, um, running quality of life programs. So I did substance abuse and family violence and morale, welfare, and recreation, and a whole host of programs that made sure we took care of our soldiers and their families and the retirees that were serving abroad uh, in the event that they would need services. Um, Loved every minute of it. Uh, Came back to the United States in 1988, and um, after 20 years of um, service or somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, being a civil servant working for the Department of the Army, was selected to be a, a congressional fellow on Capitol Hill, which meant I got to go up there for a year and work for a member of Congress um, with, you know, the the Army paying my salary as a fellow. And I happened to fall into the office of Senator Harry Reid. You had to find your own job back then. And I was very interested in Senator Reid's. Um, first of all, he represented a Western state. He was on the aging committee, and aging was part of my professional background. And, and my journey really began in suicide. Um, as this fellow working for Senator Reid when we had a hearing on mental health and the elderly. And during that hearing, the witness that that day was Mike Wallace from 60 Minutes, who was there to speak about, you know, his own burden with mental health issues and how treatment and therapy really helped him get over his challenge and 
um, in preparation for the hearing, I had called the, the state of aging, uh, state of Nevada aging services and said, what's the number one problem facing older adults in the mental health arena? And to my surprise, they said suicide. And um, Adam, when I looked at the data, sure enough, Nevada led the nation in older adult suicide. So I wrote up my talking points and some background for the senator. And as Mr. Wallace shared his own battle with clinical depression, Senator Reid took the microphone and said, if you're brave enough to talk about your battle um, with depression, I should be brave enough to talk about my pop suicide. And he went on to talk about the burden of suicide amongst older adults to include his own dad many years earlier, and that it was high time we as a nation recognized suicide as the public health problem it was as a nation and, and called for action to begin to turn some policy focus to suicide. And so I was sitting at the right place at the right time. I, I left the civil service, joined the political service, and worked for Senator Reid for a few years, advancing the suicide prevention portfolio from Congress. And then when my time with Senator Reid came to an end, I went on to run a nonprofit in suicide prevention called SPAN USA, the Suicide Prevention Action Network USA, which was uh, its mission was to build political will around suicide prevention at both the state and the national level. I did that for five years and in the duration, completed my doctorate, which was on older adult suicide um, and looking at why we had such variation across the nation in terms of rates of suicide for older adults. And then as soon as I got my PhD um, from the Virginia Commonwealth University uh, in 2007, was offered the opportunity to join the Education Development Center, where I currently serve as a senior vice president for practice leadership, overseeing an entire portfolio of injury violence and suicide prevention. So that's quite a long answer to how I got here, but I think the, the, the take home point for me is I almost feel like it was destiny that I was supposed to work where I was. I was supposed to be, um, you know, made aware of the issue of suicide in the country, and I'm a policy wonk by definition. So it was just the right setting, the right time, the right issue. I worked for the right man, and, and I worked in a place where it was feasible to advance the nation's response and resolve to suicide prevention because I was at the national policy level, and it's exactly where I wanted to be. Well, that's fantastic, and um, yeah, a lot to take in there uh, across your entire career, serving the military and then entering advocacy work with suicide prevention, and again, we're just really honored to have you here today to talk to us. So obviously, with a career that long, we could go in many directions today, but I think one of the things I was most interested in hearing about is your work with the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention around developing the 2012 U.S. National Strategy for Suicide Prevention. Kind of want to zoom in on that for today and first just learn from you a little bit about what is the Nation National Action Alliance, how is it formed, and what is its purpose? Sure. I'd be happy to share that with you. And, and I think it, it does go back a little bit to the Hill. When, when the acknowledgement was made that there really wasn't a public policy response to the, the health problem of suicide in America, um, Senator Reid introduced a resolution which basically called that suicide be recognized as a national problem, it warranted a national solution, and we needed a national strategy for suicide prevention. And, and the, the meat of that resolution came from a meeting the UN hosted that basically said in 1996, any nation that wants to deal with the problem of suicide needs to really do two things. One, they need to have a national strategy 
and two, they need to have a coordinating body or a public-private partnership that oversees the national effort. So at the time that resolution was introduced, one was introduced in the Senate by Senator Reid and one in the House of uh, Representatives by Representative John Lewis in Georgia, you know, they both passed um, that year, and, and it was the very same time that Dr. David Satcher was being confirmed as the Surgeon General. And so um, a lot of energy went into um, creating a conversation nationally to create a national strategy for suicide prevention. And so we had a big meeting in Reno, Nevada, um, about 300 people, researchers, clinicians, advocates, survivors of loss, et cetera, all came together. And the result of that was Dr. Satcher published um, the first national strategy for suicide prevention, which was released in 2001. And one of the objectives in that national strategy called for the creation, it was objective 2.2 in the 2001 strategy, called for the creation of a public-private partnership to oversee the nation's suicide prevention effort because no one agency can master the challenge of suicide prevention all by itself. And if we think of where we are today in the field, Adam, you can see that really clearly when you think about CDC oversees surveillance and NIH oversees research and SAMHSA oversees services and grants and Department of Defense looks after the men and women who serve and VA, of course, looks after the men and women who have served. And there are countless other organizations nationally at the federal level and many, many nonprofits, all who do something in the field of suicide prevention. So the Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention was created in 2010, kind of in response to that 2001 objective, which called for the creation of a public-private partnership. And what we did was we, we looked at the national strategy, we saw what the 13 goals and 60 objectives called for, and then we started to identify sectors and corporations and philanthropists and government leaders that could join this public-private partnership and each of them bring the competence from the sector they came from to help us advance the collective national strategy for suicide prevention. And that was, that was created in 2010 and we were lucky enough at the time to have former Senator Gordon Smith um, from Oregon um, serve as our pub, private sector co-chair, excuse me, because he was working at the National Association of Broadcasters at that time, and I believe still is, and we also um, had the Secretary of the Army, John McHugh, serve as our public sector co-chair. So we now had you know, a private sector and a public sector co-chair, and we had you know, multiple representatives from both of those two sectors join this conversation that joins two times a year and really decides you know, how we move forward with the you know, 13 goals and 60 objectives of the current national strategy. Their first direction as an alliance in 2010 was to revise the national strategy from 2001 to a more current document that brought us up to date with where we were as a nation for suicide prevention. And um, that's the national strategy for suicide prevention that we're living under today that I help write with our Surgeon General. Fantastic. So first of all, you touched on the idea that this is, a, this is quite a process. So it sounds like some of what you're talking about began even in the 90s and then the first strategy in 2001, developing some of the infrastructure with the Action Alliance before we could then actually 
develop the current strategy, the 2012 strategy. Am I hearing you right? I, I think you're spot on, and I think you nailed it. And I think that's what a lot of people in our field maybe aren't aware of, is that we're not where we are by accident. You know, we've been very, very strategic along the way about how to make sure we include all voices, how to make sure we, we know what we need, you know, how to make sure we, we fund what we need, at least initially, and engage the right partners. And so, you know, in addition to what I've described, there was a National um, Academy of Sciences report on reducing a suicide, a national imperative, which really summed up everything we knew about suicide. And that was released, I believe, in 2002. You know, President Bush um, authorized the New Freedom Commission um, right after he was elected president. And the very first objective of that report was to implement the National Strategy for Suicide Prevention. And, you know, multiple policy documents have followed and legislation has followed. I mean, even after Senator Smith lost his son Garrett to suicide in 2004, the first federal legislation that has ever been um, introduced and funded um, was the Garrett Lee Smith Memorial Act, which funds you know, states, tribes, and colleges to address youth suicide prevention and early intervention. And um, it has been a, a, a funding obligation that has been in place since 2005, and much of the work we're doing nationally today stems from the funding that resulted from the Garrett Lee Smith Memorial Act. And um, certainly, I think um, you can see that, you know, all of that was part of why we are where we are today, at least in terms of youth suicide prevention. You know, unfortunately, sometimes it does take a very personal uh, connection to suicide to really galvanize people and, and move us forward. I think that's very true, and I think just from the few examples that, you know, I've shared with you in, in our conversation thus far, certainly Senator Reed's personal loss of his own dad was an inspiration to him. Senator Smith and, and Mrs. Smith's tr just tremendous advocacy, and I will tell you as an advocate, having worked on the Hill for many years before my current job, you know, it was bringing people, it was the voice of those who lost a loved one to suicide recognizing that they couldn't change the past and bring back their loved one, but they could inform the future by sharing their loss, sharing their story, educating their, their legislators, that we just built political will because people were willing to tell their story. And, and you know, we're realizing, as I said, they couldn't change the past, that they could be a part of changing the future. And I think that's just been a vital element of, of, of the success of the suicide prevention movement. In addition, of course, to all the great work that our professional colleagues do, I think that personal story of both the lost survivor who lost a loved one, and today, a very active part of our conversation is the voice of the attempt survivor who is helping us understand what we can do better as they enter our facilities for care and how we can, how we can evolve the services we deliver in, in a manner that is most well-received by somebody who's been there and done that, so to speak, and, and knows what worked and knows what didn't, and then modifying our practices accordingly. So I feel like you've really covered why it's imperative that we have a national strategy, but that's easy to say and sort of obviously a, a very uh, 
involved process with many partners, both on, both on the public and private se sector. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about how you went about developing the 2000 National Strategy with Surgeon General Dr. Regina Benjamin? I think the most important thing is right after the National Strategy, um, the National Action Alliance, excuse me, was launched in 2010, the first thing that Secretary McHugh and um, Senator Smith asked us to do was to revise the National Strategy. And he asked, they asked Dr. Benjamin and myself to, to lead that task force. And we brought together a team of about 12 folks from around the country who had various degrees of expertise. And, and we set out and we gave ourselves a two-year time frame to really um, pull together what we now knew about suicide, what worked, what, what hasn't worked. We had, we had listening sessions, so we went around the country and we advertised in advance of our arrival and said we're getting right, ready to write a, a new national strategy and we welcome the public voice to this process. So we, we certainly did that. We did an online survey that went out and anybody in the country could comment to a group of specific questions that we provided, as well as some open-ended questions. And we got input through electronic means, through the, the online surveys. And we had also, in addition to the task force that was asked to revise the strategy, about seven or eight other task forces that were looking at things like transforming healthcare, or veterans and military suicide, or, or um, surveillance and data. So they were looking at a whole host of workplace, faith group, et cetera. And so each of those task forces were asked to think about, as they were doing their work, what would they like to see from the area or the sector that they represented? What would they like to see included in a new um, national strategy for suicide prevention? So. Over that two-year period, we, we met every single Friday. Uh, we, we talked about these issues. We took all the data that we had collected. We looked at the 2001 strategy. We, we did the lit reviews to see how science had changed and delivery had changed um, since the first strategy was written. And then we wrote the National Strategy for Suicide Prevention. And of course, once that was done, you know, staffed it with a multitude of national nonprofits who have varying expertise. Uh, we staffed it with all the federal agencies who needed to make sure they understood what we were saying about them, their contribution, their agency. And um, by World Suicide Prevention Day, uh, September 10th, 2012, we had completed the revised national strategy and it was launched on World Suicide Prevention Day, 2012. And that's the process we went through. It was very collective. It was, it was very harmonious. There was not a lot of um, disagreement along the way. I think we had a pretty good handle, and it's kind of like what I said a moment ago. The journey in suicide prevention for all of us has not been accidental. It, it's really been quite intentional. So revising the strategy was not as difficult um, as you might think, although it was a tremendous investment of time and passion. Um, the field itself was fairly unified about you know, what needed to be stated. Um, like in the first version, we didn't talk much about postvention or how important it was after a suicide loss to care for those who might have been exposed to that loss. So there's much more in the 2012 strategy about the role of postvention. Or um, 
we we approached suicide prevention in 2001 very individualistically, um, much like a patient and a practitioner and them coming together and helping work through um, the challenge of the individual who was seeking treatment. I think in the 2012 strategy, you see a bit of a shift where we're thinking about systems and transforming systems and, and merging best practices, not, not allowing ourselves to think that one approach or one solution would satisfy the, the complex problem of suicide in America, but we'd have to look at, at bundling or, or, or linking some of these best practices so that we could have a, a comprehensive integrated approach rather than just an individualistic intervention, which is very necessary at the individual level, but doesn't do much to change the systems level. And we focused a great deal in the systems change part in the 2012 strategy. Yeah, Jerry, thank you so much for those insights. And I think that led really nicely into my take on the strategy as I was reading through it. And I guess just thinking about how, like you just mentioned, that you took a more comprehensive approach, sort of expanded out of just thinking about suicide as a mental health problem. And I know you're, you're kind of famous for this quote about framing suicide prevention through a much broader lens than just mental health. In research terms, or the model's been called the social-ecological model of suicide prevention, could you just talk us through that in a little bit more detail? Sure. Um, really, what, what that means is it's really important. If, if you can just think about a river, just for an example, I think this will help a little bit. You know, you're at the river's edge, and, and people are certainly drowning, and they're calling for help, and you and your colleagues are pulling people out of the river so they don't drown. And that's in many ways... Um, the the kind of um, tertiary or you know really um, significant intervention at a time when someone's at the most crisis and you keep pulling people out of the water but you stop for a second and you say wait a minute why are people falling in the water in the first place maybe we should go upstream a little bit and see if we can prevent people from falling in the water in the first place so that's more of a primary prevention approach so is there something we can do when you look at suicide from the population level and, and you realize that, you know, the highest rate of suicides occur amongst people in the middle years of life right now, or, or certainly, as we know, um, some of our veterans come back from, from war with um, psychological wounds from war. And, and is there something we can do by acknowledging that collective impact on a population of people that might reduce the burden of suicide amongst our veterans. Or similarly, um, maybe we could go back to, to elementary school and look at programs like the Good Behavior Game that teaches children in first and second grade how to work together as a team, to be rewarded when they work together as a team, to um, be expected to work together as a team. And when that program has been implemented, um, it turns out that several years later, 10, 15 years later, you see health benefits to what can be attributed to that experience. So less smoking or less suicides or, you know, less risky behavior because they've learned that they can talk that through with people and there are rewards for acceptable behavior. And, and you know, you, you don't have to go it alone. You're, you're better off going it together. So 
I really believe that when you look at suicide in America, we, we lost 45,000 people last year. Um, if we could, for example, reduce suicides in this country from people who've made a presentation at an emergency room for a suicide attempt by making sure that the care that they receive once they walk through that door is competent, caring, comprehensive. It includes follow-up. It includes family and, per and patient engagement. It includes a commitment to process improvement, et cetera. If, if you make sure it's just not a, a, a treatment of a presentation and a discharge, but a real connection to the community they're a part of, um, we could probably reduce suicide in, by just looking at that setting alone by about 9,200 people. Um, if we made sure that the care was as comprehensive as it needs to be, rather than just treating the presentation someone comes in with. And there are lots of examples like that when you look at this from the population lens or the public health lens. And, and we really would encourage people, you've got to pull people out at the river's edge because that's right and they are in dire crisis and they need the help that our wonderful clinicians can provide them. But it's not the total answer, it's just the partial answer. We have to look even more, more so at, at what's causing people to um, interrupt that trajectory of a healthy life. Um, is it exposure to adverse childhood experiences? If you grow up in a family where violence or a community where violence, is that so traumatizing that maybe you carry that around? Or if you yourself have been assaulted, were you treated? And if not, is that a burden you're carrying all these years later that one day just becomes too heavy and you make a tragic decision to end your life? So I think it's just, it's, it's incomplete for us to look at suicide through simply a mental health lens. It's incomplete to look at it simply through a public health lens. We have to look at it through just a health lens. And, and look at every opportunity to intervene that we can. And the national strategy speaks to that very, very clearly. And in many ways, that's what the socio-ecological model encourages us to do. There are risk factors and there are protective factors at the individual level, at the family level, at the community level, and at the societal level. And our goal with the public health approach is to reduce risk. And that risk can occur, as I said, at any one of those four levels, individual, family, community, or societal, and increase um, protective factors. So really try to focus on resilience and health and wellness and connectedness and, and you know, responsible media reporting. And when we do both of these together across all of the levels of the socioecological model, I think we have the greatest chance to reduce the burden of suicide in America. Yeah, I believe that as well. And, uh, yeah, thanks for breaking that down and explaining it in such uh, good terms. I think a lot of people use the downstream, upstream terminology and just hearing kind of thinking about the river and people falling in. And, just, you know, it just really does help explain, you know, we want to try to catch people before before they fall into the river. And um, I can see how the social ecological model um, helps us get towards that. So you know, taking it a little bit – oh, go ahead. I, w I was just going to say, and just to make it really clear, one of the one of the easiest examples for me, we've heard so much about the value of gatekeeper training in the country and how educating just the public at large and caretakers, not necessarily the clinicians, but just the people 
uh, that individuals come in contact with every day, making them aware of the warning signs or the risk factors and the signs of suicide. That's a wonderful, wonderful concept. And it, it does so much good to educate people. But what if after you've done that, your community doesn't have an adequate number of clinicians to even be able to treat those who are identified at risk? So there you've got a perfect example of an upstream approach, which is gatekeeper training. But when you look a little bit downstream, the reason so many people are in the river is because there's insufficient clinical care for them to even get care if they were identified. So if we don't look at it through a lens like that, we might be missing. Or, or if we know that people are more at risk 30 days after discharge from a psychiatric hospital if, if, or, or an inpatient stay, if we don't make certain that we connect them to care post-discharge, we're not taking advantage of what we know and how what we know could save a life. And that's why I think you have to look at it through a broader lens. Yeah, I hear this uh, like recurring thing about really the systems level approach and community yeah. level and how, like you said, if we identify somebody, we need to then be able to provide them the right resources. So, um, so how does the strategy address this? Give us some examples sort of where, how you made actionable goals and objectives out of this sort of framework of the social ecological model. Well, you know, I, I, I was really pleased because I, I went back, you know, in, in preparation for our talk today, and I looked at the national strategy, and I read it from cover to cover, again, probably for the 30th time in my life. And, and I was so pleased that we, as we were developing the strategy, um, people would say to us in the feedback sessions, it's great to know what your goals and objectives are, but how can we do something with that goal and objective where we are? So we organized the strategy into four broad strategic directions, and they're really not important other than to know one deals with prevention at community level, one deals with good treatment, one deals with evaluation, and one deals with helping make sure that the community service providers are, are very aware of suicide as just something they should know about because people coming through their doors could be struggling. But at the end of each strategic direction, we put a section that said, you know, what um, the federal government can do, what states can do, what communities can do, and what individuals can do. So we kind of concretized, for lack of a better word, tangible concrete examples of what people could do if they wanted to become a part of suicide prevention in their community. And, and I think it's helped a great deal. Today, we have a, a state strategy in every state in the nation. And in many cases, they've been revised since the national strategy was revised, and they mimic in many ways, but they're tailored to the state's situation, um, the national strategy. So again, there's a roadmap or a guide that people are following. And um, I think the way we wrote the strategy made it something more than just a book that hits a shelf and sits there, but a living document that people refer, refer to all the time. And, and I do travel the country a lot. And, we, you know, we did this in 2012, and here we are in 2018. And I can tell you as recently as this morning, I talked to a state that was asking me, how would we take, you know, goal six, objective three, and make it work in this state? And, and I was able to kind of give them ideas and you could hear him just go, oh, I see that. Okay. And, and it's, it's one of those documents that you really can translate um, to either whatever setting or whatever jurisdiction. 
or, or whatever you know population you happen to work with. You can you can see you can see a plan and and where to go by by taking the time to really review this document. Absolutely, and I remember as we were sort of launching our podcast, actually one of the things that we were looking at was how could you know some of our objectives or goals of our of our podcast align with some of the national strategy goals. And I just remember, you know, like you said, there's some very concrete things in there that you can say I'm working towards achieving this goal of disseminating uh, information through digital uh, mediums, et cetera. So um, just could you go into a couple other, like, sort of specific examples of some of the um, goals and objectives that uh, some of these states and other partner organizations are working towards? Sure. One that I think is is tangible and and probably readily identifiable to your audience is goal eight and goal nine. And goal eight speaks about promote suicide prevention as a core component of healthcare services, not an add-on, not something that you might ask or you you might remember, but a core component, something you have to do when patients come through your door and are being seen at your facility. And goal nine speaks about promote and implement effective clinical and professional practices for assessing and treating those identified as being at risk for suicidal behaviors. So the program that we now also operate um, at the Education Development Center is the Zero Suicide Institute. And many healthcare systems around the country are recognizing, and there are seven elements to zero suicide, and they're simple. There are things like if you want it to work, make sure leadership is engaged. If you want it to work, make sure your clinicians are aware of evidence-based practices. If you want it to work, make sure your clinicians are caring and competent and are, are trained in how to assess and manage risk and formulate risk with patients that, that they're seeing. If you want it to work, you know, make sure that you talk about um, access to lethal means. And, and counseling to families and, and, and patients about access to lethal means, whether it's prescription medication, poisons, firearms, whatever. You want to keep them safe in their recovery. If you want it to work, make sure that you focus on continuity of care. So don't just treat them in that setting and then discharge them, but treat them in that setting and connect them to the next level of care so they can continue to, on their journey to recovery. And lastly, um, you know, um, make sure that you're committed to process improvement. So we should be learning from every suicide that occurs in a healthcare setting what, what we did right, and if there was something we could have done better, what is it we could have done better so that we can incorporate that knowledge into the next intervention with a patient. So that's transformative care. That's transforming the healthcare system, and when we've done that, in, in early adopter organizations, we've seen dramatic reductions in patient population suicide risk. So I'm talking about, you know, there might have been, you know, a certain degree of deaths, you know, before the implementation of zero suicide. And after the implementation of zero suicide, there was a 30% reduction or a 40% reduction in suicide deaths in that boundary healthcare system. So it, it certainly suggests that the intentions of goal eight and nine that have now been transformed into an implementable and operational program that, that healthcare settings can 
buy into this aspirational goal of zero suicide and take very concrete steps to um, make sure that that care is bundled and those pra best practices are linked and we'll see the results um, that we hope to see. And if we don't see the results that we hope to see, we continually assess what we're doing and we see if we can do something differently that will take us in the direction of burden reduction. And so there's a very concrete example of where zero suicide grew right out of the language of the National Strategy for Suicide Prevention and has now become a very widespread, acceptable um, approach that many healthcare settings are taking advantage of and many more are prepared to take advantage of. So I want to turn now to, um, so you mentioned a couple of the goals that we do seem to be really making some solid progress on, but of course there's going to be some where we could use extra push, more resources in that direction. Where do you see, um, what objectives do we really need to focus our efforts on moving forward? Yeah, I think, you know, um, I read this morning, and I, I have to tell you, um, it was a good exercise for me to reread the national strategy because we've done an awful lot in almost every one of these goals or objectives to some degree, some far more than others, but I think we've made a lot of progress. Um, what we've done at the Action Alliance is we've kind of, rather than focusing on trying to accomplish all 60 objectives at one time, we've, we're kind of focusing pretty heavily on transforming healthcare systems and advancing zero suicide. We're, we're focusing on changing the conversation because you know, it's really important that we engage our media and our journalists in the country and our, you know, entertainment um, sector as well on, you know, if you're going to include a story on suicide or mental health or, or, or crisis, please do so responsibly. People do recover. Suicide is preventable. There are effective interventions. We do have a national hotline we do have a national resource center. So try to um, make certain that you, you let people know this is not an issue that you have to fight and struggle with all by yourself. But there are resources out there that can help you. Um, and, and we want to make sure that, you know, when we cover suicide um, in the media, for example, our change the conversation objective, you know, we're working with journalists in the media and others to try to really help them understand through data that, in fact, it's quite, quite well known that when there's um, a, a death by suicide of a celebrity or, or something where the coverage is extreme and, and some of that coverage doesn't um, maybe over-dramatizes or romanticizes suicide, um, there seems to be an uptick in suicide. So we want to make sure that we don't contribute to that on because some vulnerable people might be exposed to that and not quite know where to turn. So we want to make sure we keep working on that. Um, but I think by and large, um, our surveillance group is getting better and better and better at, at finding data that can be very helpful as we plan and strategically um, set the path for suicide intervention. Um, we have, we now have a research agenda and our NIMH and some of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, for example, are funding research that, um, that is quite needed in the field that's been 
documented and prepared and presented by the research task force. So we're not just funding things that we don't need, but we've identified things we do need, and we're starting to see requests for proposals for that kind of research, which I think um, is probably, in my opinion, one of the greatest challenges we have is in order to really address the complex problem of suicide and the fact that we need to be mindful that the solutions, therefore, have to be as complex as the challenge, we've got to invest in discovery. So I would like to see us really increase our national investment in, in research and certainly in programs. Um, right now, the only federally appropriated program um, for actual intervention is youth suicide. And yet I shared with you earlier that we have a tremendous burden amongst those in the middle years of life. Older adults have the highest suicide rate of any population. Um, and it's, it's important that we make an investment in the older adult who is certainly um, worthy of a suicide prevention intervention because depression and, and mental health concerns are not a normal part of aging and they're just as, as, as able to be treated as a 17-year-old. And so we need to invest in that older adult intervention. We need to invest in why so many people in the middle years of life are ending their life um, prematurely. What can we do to reach them, connect them, serve them, so they can live fruitful lives as fruitful, you know, employees and parents and, and spouses and partners, et cetera? We have to make sure we do that. So I, I think, you know, we're making progress if we would invest a bit more heavily in infrastructure so it wasn't um, so difficult for a state to mobilize its resources around suicide prevention or if we could mobilize our resources to invest a bit heavier in research, we might, we might discover things much more quickly that could then be scaled up. And I would then hope to see by those two approaches just alone, um, see that we'd be closer at, at reducing the burden of suicide around the country. We do have a national goal to reduce the rate of suicide by 20% by 2025, but without investment, that is a very, very difficult goal to achieve. And, and I have to say on behalf of the field I'm a part of, I, I tip my hat to the people who do this every single day and, and how they can rub two nickels together and make a quarter, um, which, you know, they do the best they can with the resources they have. But I'd be remiss if I chatted with you and didn't say that resources are still one of our big, big challenges when it comes to suicide. Um, I can tell you that among the top 10 leading causes of death, there have been decreases in all of them. And when you look, at, except for suicide, and when you look at those investments, the investments in other leading causes of death that have led to those reductions are far greater than the investments in suicide. So I think as a nation, we still haven't completely come to terms with the fact that we tried to 20 years ago when we said suicide was a national problem, warranting a national strategy, and we need a national, so we need a national solution, or we we really have to, to commit to this public health problem. And while I think we've made great progress, I do think the resource investment is still um, woefully inadequate. And I hope we can continue to raise you know, social awareness and, and make certain that people understand you know, when we have discovery and when we have infrastructure, we will save lives. Yeah, thank you for iterating that point. And again, you know, you're speaking 
speaking straight to me. So I, I'm te- definitely hearing you. You mentioned so much in that from communication online, taking it all in. We can put that on rewind, listen to it again a couple times. <laughs> Go ahead. I appreciate it. Yeah. So um, where are we going next? I mean, you've talked about where we're moving in terms of um, some of the programs, policies, initiatives that are uh, sort of being implemented across the country. But where are we going next with the strategy itself? Is there, you know, there was 11 years in between the 2001 and the 2012 strategy. Here we are almost uh, six years into, into the current strategy. How are we advancing towards the next version of this strategy? Great question. And, when, and I can share with you that when Dr. Benjamin and I came together along with the great committee that helped us write this, we always intended that the strategy would be a 10-year strategy. So if we launched it in 2012, I would imagine that probably around 2022, we'll be, we'll be ready for an update of this strategy and kind of do the same thing and see how we've advanced, see how maybe we haven't advanced and put together a document that can lead the nation for the next um, 10 years. But I would also say that since we have this national goal of reducing the rate of suicide by 20% by 2025, you know, we might want to think that up and see where we are in 2025 with regards to the the rate of suicide and and has our collective effort and our collective impact gotten us closer to that 20% um, or not. So I would say that, you know, the next step will be a revision, whether that's 2022, 2023, or 2025, I think remains to be discussed. It'll be certainly a conversation that by virtue of this podcast, I will bring to the Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention as something we ought to put on the agenda um, in terms of a discussion about what people feel. And because we do use the Action Alliance very much to guide the priorities we set, the actions we take, the, the messages we convey. And I would turn to our current co-chairs, um, Dr. Carolyn Clancy from the Veterans Administration, who's the executive in charge representing the public sector, and Mr. Robert Turner, retired senior vice president from Union Pacific Railroad, who's our private sector co-chair, and turn to them and ask them to speak with the executive committee, the 45 members who sit around the table with them, what their collective view is in terms of when we should set the revision of the next national strategy um, as an important important agenda item for us to talk about. But I, I don't have a specific date, but it was intended to be a 10-year strategy. Well, Jerry, Dr. Reed, I feel like we have learned so much today. I appreciate your time so much uh, for, you know, just imparting some of this wisdom over your over 20 years of experience here. And I know we could cover a lot more, but I want to close it out for today and let you kind of finish up with any uh, closing remarks or just uh, inspirational messages for the future of suicide prevention, anything you'd like to end with today. Well, Adam, I sure appreciate the opportunity, and I would – I am an optimist by design and by, by, uh, by creation. So I, I would say that, you know, we should all in our field celebrate the progress and recognize collectively that more needs to be done. But let's remember, we, we have a national strategy for suicide prevention. Every state in the nation has a state strategy for suicide prevention. We ha- every state in the nation and many colleges and many tribal communities have received a Garrett Lee Smith Memorial Act grant to advance youth suicide prevention and early intervention in their community. We, we have looked, we have zero suicide 
um, that is really making tremendous advances. And we're working with communities to help them do a similar thing in their communities to see how to pull together the right people in your community based on the data from your community and so on suicide to make the kind of collective impact you want to make. We have, you know, appropriations to CDC and to SAMHSA and to, to NIMH to support research and surveillance and services. Um, we really have training for clinicians who maybe didn't get that training in graduate school. They can take advantage of, you know, um, assessing and managing suicide risk training and build that skill set even post-graduation. Um, post, um, and, and I think we have, um, although it's not, you know, as robust as I would like it to be, we do have an infrastructure. We do call ourselves a community. We do work together. And, and I think, you know, I think we're getting to the place where we're going to start to see the benefit of our collective wisdom really begin to make sure that any door a person walks through who's struggling with suicide prevention, whether it's a faith community door, whether it's a mental health services door, or whether it's a hospital emergency room door, enough of us are going to know about what that risk looks like to know how to reach out, extend our hand, and help that person who's struggling get to the right door so they can get the care they need and we can save the lives that, are, that we're able to save. I'd like to carry that optimism forward with us. And, um, again, thank you for your time today. That's going to do it for today's podcast. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to share some links with you so you all can dive a little deeper into learning more about Dr. Reed, learning more about the Education Development Center and all its work with SPARK, Zero Suicide, the Action Alliance. So really just a wealth of resources here. And we encourage you to reach out to us. If you have questions, comments, feedback about some of the things Dr. Reed was talking about today, we would really love to hear from you. And as always, we invite you to subscribe to the podcast and share it with others. Until next time, join us for more interviews on important work in suicide prevention. 